Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Loi Jun, who is a food writer, content creator and founder of the Take About Podcast. There is so much overlap between Malaysian and Singaporean cuisine and in the work that I do at Singapore Noodles, I've come across Lee Jun's work, whether it is his sharing on the Malay technique of pecah miniak or the Chinese technique of salt baking on Food 52, or even his podcast that takes a story-based approach in unraveling food stories in Asia. In the following conversation, we chat about the role of playfulness in the kitchen, especially when it comes to traditional food, and discuss some of the challenges that we face when creating content about Singaporean and Malaysian food culture. I was really struck by the similarities between um, what you do, what I do, and also what we're fighting for, and also mm. our life journeys, because I know that you used to be a chef, or at least worked in FMB for a while, and I was really curious as to why you decided to leave hospitality, and you know, what really led you on this path to do what you currently do? Um, well, I would say the path was to me at least in in that moment it was like quite straightforward because um well well the biggest shift was actually from chemical engineering like finishing up my chemical engineering degree and then going into the food industry so after um graduating i went uh into culinary school just more like you know to to pick up a new skill um rather than seeing it as like oh this is a career i want to do for the rest of my life um but in those years of uh, exploring how to cook um and after that going into a restaurant kitchen to work uh, and this was in the in the states um so those kind of cooking experiences really made me feel like oh this is something that I could do and potentially would want to do for the rest of my life. And slowly I just like went down that track and, uh, and it went from, you know, cooking at restaurants, which I know I didn't want to do like long-term, but I just wanted to gain the experience and, and learn really how to cook properly from really pro like chefs. Um, and after that went into food writing, uh, photography, and even a bit of like, I guess like recipe development and food podcasting, I suppose. Yeah. Which we have, so much overlap in, in what we do and and yeah I've over the years I've seen like stuff that that you have put out uh, like this podcast and then like even like a small book and like the videos that you do um, yeah it's really impressive yeah yeah it's so <laughs> I also came from a science background so I did food science in school and then I, I you know started working in F&B um, so why why you know go to culinary school I mean were you always a foodie well, I yeah, so this is the thing. It's like a lot of food people, they, or, or well, when, when you ask a lot of like chefs or uh, restaurateurs or whatnot, when you ask them about their backstory, their origin story, they always have a very neat and tidy like, oh, I used to help my mom in the kitchen when I was like five years old, um, like rolling like dumplings or like pasta or whatnot. But, <laughs> but I, I don't think I had, that as a as a kid i mean i always love to eat but the cooking part wasn't something that i have like a very deep backstory on uh or very like compelling one but it was something that i slowly grew into um and really enjoy doing over over the years or over the past few years i would say especially during 
uh, in uni. Um, and it was, yeah, I would say it's a recent um, interest. I, I mean, like passion is a big word, but sure, you can say it's like a recent passion, but uh, it's in the past, like I would say five to 10 years. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like being like being a greedy person in general is like a really great motivation for someone to, you know, get involved in <laughs> Um, because I, I always feel that you have to have that sense of curiosity with your food mm. in order to really explore the intricacies and really want to spend time in the kitchen. But why focus um, on Asian food? I mean, I've been reading your articles on Food 52. I've listened to your podcast, um, Take a Bow, as well as Breaking Bread. Um, oh, thanks so, so much. <laughs> so why this focus on Asian food? I know that you used to work at Blue Hill Stone Barns, which is like one of the best restaurants that really focus on Western-style cooking while elevating plants, right? So why Asian food? Mm, I think that is like a very interesting, very like niche question that we can go into. But I, I would say it all stems from, like you said, this general curiosity for food and, and flavor and how food tastes and just learning more and more about food and everything around it, I would say. Um, so, I mean, when, when it comes to food and cooking, I'm just really curious about like flavors and, oh, how would this food taste together with another kind of food? Um, and, and that in itself is almost like a journey of of discovery like oh if you find out about like let's say like pandan right and then you think about oh where does pandan come from where is it like native to um and then you learn about like the history around it in southeast asia yeah so i think it's just a general curiosity for for food and flavor and the reason why i guess i am sort of like championing or or delving really deep into asian food or asian cuisine it's because it's the cuisine that I grew up around, right? Or, or it was all around me and it's the environment and, and background. And I have, I guess, like many Malaysians, Singaporeans or Asians, I have a lot of memories and attachment to these flavors. Um, and, and these are the flavors that, you know, I grew up with. I have stories about, I would love to find out more and it would mean more to me as I find out more about it as well. But then again, it's, it's not me saying that oh, Asian food is better than all the other cuisines in and, and the rest of the world, right? Because if I grew up in like, let's say like Latin America or like Middle, Middle East, like I would probably like champion those foods because I know them better and they have more meaning to me. Yeah. So, so it comes from a place of like, oh, having grown up in this area, um, they, it's something that I'm really curious and interested about and it just has more, has more meaning, I suppose. Mm. At the end of the day, yeah. Yeah, but do you think there is also an element of activism in what you're trying to do? Because I was listening to Take A Bow and you actually had an episode on the Chetty Malacans. And you mm. know, hardly anything has been said about this community, whether it's in Malaysia or in Singapore. Um, and I know that you recently have um, had a new episode on refugee cuisine, right? Um, so is there an element of activism? Is there something that you would like to push for in the work that you do? Mm, I think in general, in all the work that I do, like beyond, I guess, the podcast episodes that you mentioned, like beyond even like the recipes that I do that, you know, mixes weird food together uh, or like funky flavors together. Um, beyond all those things, I, I think it all comes from a place of wanting people to appreciate food 
more and and have the desire to learn and understand where your food comes from the food systems around you perhaps even like you know delving into the community and societal aspects of of food mm-hmm. and i i think that's something that is pretty lacking in in malaysia maybe like singapore um you guys do it better but i think in malaysia it's, it's quite lacking and it's something that is needed i would say to drive the food industry forward to to slowly like mature the food industry uh, we need more people to be interested in food um and this is like uh yeah uh, i think a really good quote to sum it up um and and i first heard it from uh, Darren Dio which is uh, the chef behind Dewakan so malaysians always pride ourselves in saying like oh we love food right yeah. um but in reality we actually what we love to do is we love to eat right we just love to like you know find out oh where can you get the best nasi lemak where can you get the best chendol but when you say you love food you must also love like all the other things around food right not just like oh just about the flavor you have to love like where the food comes from uh you have to be interested in you know how the food is made um what sort of cultures uh influence this dish like those are all really cool and interesting and important stories to to find out yeah and so i i guess circling back to your question um what a, a lot of what i do is trying just to get people interested about food yeah yeah i i think i can relate to that because when i first started singapore noodles i would feel so discouraged because I feel that the culture in Singapore is so consumptive um literally and also you know when it comes to consuming media you know we are we always look at really nice food videos and say oh my god that's food porn that looks so delicious but we would never ever go into our kitchens and try to make those things or mm-hmm. even when it comes to you know now in Singapore there's this whole new resurgence of interest in terms of you know protecting your heritage and supporting local mm. um and i see a lot of people going to um establishments that champion local ingredients and food but i don't really see uh them actually dabbling in their own kitchens or going to the wet market or you know just try their hand at making traditional food which i feel is so key to the preservation of our food so what is your perspective on that Mm I think that is certainly true like in in Malaysia as well as as like like you uh described in Singapore the situation is that people are um more interested in you know the eating and although there's like slowly like a movement towards um getting our hands really more more dirty and more involved in in the process behind cooking and yeah it's really encouraging to see actually and I think as a Malaysian I'm just like learning a lot about how Singapore uh Singapore's food industry has has grown in the past years and I think Malaysia as a whole we have a lot of lessons to to learn from that yeah mm-hmm. yeah I I feel as in I don't really know much about um what is going on in Malaysia but from what I see I think there are a lot of new restaurants or like restaurants doing really meaningful things like Dawakan that you talked about and I I also know that there is the Ulam school coming up with uh, Eric mm. Okoro I previously had him on the podcast and I thought Oh yeah I saw him fantastic what he's doing and also Sharifa Nadira who is like this local artist as championing orang mm-hmm. asli Zina I was like oh my gosh like you know actually there are so many people both in Malaysia and in Singapore that 
are doing such amazing things. So the mm. thing about preservation of food culture and heritage has been like a hot topic for decades, right? I mean, people have been mm-hmm. talking about it for so long. So what do you think um, you can bring to the table? I mean, you know, you are young, you clearly approach things in a different way. What do you think is your way of preserving our culture and our cuisine? Mm, I Yeah, that is... <laughs> yeah, I think that is a really tricky topic in a sense because what does it mean to like preserve food culture right like are you saying we should like document it more we should um just remember these things more or are you saying that you know we want to preserve the exact flavors the exact recipes of of how dishes um are made how they taste over like centuries because I guess if it's the former, if it's talking about like documentation and, and writing down stories um, and, and sharing them, I think that is really, really important. And that is kind of, I, I guess that's a part of what I'm, I'm doing as well and what I'm trying to champion, right? Like documenting these stories through the medium of like podcasts or articles. Um, and, and that is something that is severely lacking in, I, I guess, in the past in, in this region of the world, in Southeast Asia. Like we have... A uh, severe lack of food documentation about the history of food, about how certain dishes were made. Like if you look at the U.S., like when you when you um, type just in Google, like oh how it, how did like I guess a baked Alaska come to be, um, or or even like very international foods like oh how did French fries come to be? Like those things you can easily find source material for, um, but for more. Malaysian or Southeast Asian or uh, yeah dishes from this area of the world is really hard to piece together the, the evidence and a lot of the food history um, runs on a bit of like speculative uh, evidence like or, or, or I guess a lot of like um, verbal stories you hear from like uh, people's like grandmothers or grandfathers and and just very it, it, it's quite like tentative evidence um so i think that is important like moving forward for us to have more records of our food history and our our food culture um but in a sense like i know a lot of people speak about preserving food uh in the second sense right in in a sense of like oh we want our we, you cannot like um kind of bastardize a chakritya or cannot you, you shouldn't bastardize like a satay or something like that but for me, food, the, the flavor of food and, and, oh, well, yeah, the flavor of food will change over time, no matter what. Like, you cannot stop the flavor or evolution of, of, of uh, food, right? And it's almost like a futile attempt to, to make things taste the same, exactly the same as it was like 100 years ago. Uh, it might be like a cool, like, investigative sort of, um, uh, adventure to 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 taste actually how food tastes like a hundred a thousand years ago, but as a if you're talking about preserving the exact taste the exact flavor of food, I think yeah it's it's not um, something that I would champion um, yeah and I love you know part part of the reason I I love food is because of uh, you, you see how all these different cultures affect the taste and flavor of food in, in a certain region, in a certain country. And it's because of all these like intermingling of cultures that new dishes come to be, right? New flavor combinations. And that's 
really where the most exciting things happen for me. Like, like, uh, like you mentioned this sound like a chatty episode, right? That came into play because of, I guess, like all the, the Malay cuisine, um, Indian cuisine, and there's a bit of like religious um, cuisine in there as well, like from um, uh, whether it's like Hinduism or Muslim uh, or, yeah, or, or Islam. And yeah, it's, it's because of all these intermingling that like really cool stuff happening. Mm. Yeah. I love what you just said. And I feel like you just opened a huge can of worms there. Oh my God. <laughs> no, and I find it absolutely fascinating because um, I feel that there is a tension between providing a holistic and accurate representation and gate- gatekeeping, which is something that is like huge, right? With, with mm. local culture and with the use of social media. So I want to tell you a funny story. So recently I had, um, a Eurasian lady come to my house for tea. So I'm not sure if you know, but I live in regional Victoria, which is like the countryside. And so I asked her, oh, so, you know, how do you connect with your own heritage now that you're here? And she says that her parents moved here in 1979. And when they were craving for things like uh, Thai Tao Kui, right? And they couldn't find the Kui to make the Thai Tao Kui. And they couldn't <laughs> find daikon. You know what they use in place of the Kui? They actually bought crumpets and cut it up into oh, wow. and fry it with ketchup mayonnaise and eggs. And I was so mind blown. Oh, that's quite genius. Yeah. Is, right? Yeah. And then because the, the crumpets actually have holes, so they absorb all of that, you know, sweet sauce. Mm. And I thought it was fantastic, but she felt a bit like embarrassed about it. She was like, you know, it's not real Singaporean food. <laughs> But I find that absolutely amazing and that's like so central to what we do as cooks, right? Which is adopt a really playful approach and whatever tastes good, it's like the proof of the pudding, you know? Like you don't have to spend time arguing about whether or not it's the right thing or whatever. As mm. long as something tastes good, it will be preserved and it's like noteworthy. And I feel that at the same time, there is this feeling of protectiveness or wanting to gatekeep um, our cuisine because it's so sacred to us, right? I know that recently there's a new cookbook. I won't say which or like who wrote <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I was shocked at the level of misrepresentation uh, mm. and like false truths in it. I mean, there is a part of me that is like, okay, we need to say something about this Um, But at the same time, I feel that gatekeeping is also the death, will be the death of our cuisine, you know, because if we put so many rules and like we start calling people out, people will be afraid to even cook it or to share about it. Um, So what what do you think? Yeah, there is certainly a sense of, yeah, again, (laughs) it's a big topic to unpack here. But yeah, it's tricky. But I would say that it's something that will happen regardless there will be people that you know will try to like gatekeep and 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 try to say like oh you should you know not change certain things you should you should really like wholly preserve certain traditions certain food flavors um and and that we we can see that it's happened like in the past decade and and especially in the past decade in the west as well right like the whole debate about authenticity like what is an authentic um, even like pizza, what is an authentic like burger? Like, is there are tons of people doing weird versions of that? Sometimes like bastardizing it even. Um, 
but that is to me like that's where the most interesting things happen so like just just for an example there was the like episode one of uh, Ugly Delicious, right? Uh, David Chang's show. It was about pizza and, and they went all around the world to to learn about pizzas. And there was like, you know, the authentic Neapolitan pizza. And then there was this guy in Japan um, making really, uh, re- really authentic, um, uh, it, almost like Italian pizzas. But the thing about his pizzas was that um, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some would even say like, oh, it was better than, than stuff that you'll find in Italy. But it's all the way in Japan. So like, how do you say like, oh, that is like authentic to, to Italy, right? One thing that comes to mind when I think about this example of like Italian food, right, is the whole debate about, oh, what does it mean to, uh, what, the, what is the meaning or philosophy behind Italian cuisine, right? Is it to get the basil from, all the way from Italy or, you know, maybe use something that is different like Thai basil, which is, you can find everywhere here and, and trying to implement that in your pizza. And, and is that, that is kind of, to me, that is still in the Italian spirit. Although yes, you can say the ingredient is, is pretty different and the, uh, the flavor might be, might be quite different from something you'll find in Italy, but in a sense, it uses that, that philosophy of using, things around you and and making it better yeah mm. yeah so I, I i don't know if that answers your question or that <laughs> furthers our discussion but yeah but yeah yeah i mean i do i do get what you're saying i feel that you know things like ramen you know it's like so freewheeling and that spirit it's um really like an amalgamation of different cultures and even when you look at things like korean food right um i was really like curious behind why they use things like processed meat or like uh, I mean mm. ham or spam in their army stew or like processed cheese and my Korean friend says that it's because of their their past you know like uh, the history and I think we have mm. a lot of that in Singapore and Malaysia as well and I think you know something that you really like uh, you made a great point was um, was when you talked about how there is an intermingling between the different cultures, which really sparked this whole new fusion cuisine, which is Singaporean food. Um, And it's something that you don't see in like the origin countries like uh, China or India. Um, But what about fusion food as we know it today? Like, you know, the younger generation has been putting their own spin um, on dishes and sometimes I can tell you that I feel pretty disgusted by the kind of things that they create. (laughs) In a sense that it, I feel that, you know, partially it's also because of social media where you have things that are made more for um, the eye, like how pleasing it is to the eye rather than how it tastes. Versus in the past where, you know, social media did not exist. The only barometer for how good your food was was the way it tasted, right? Mm. So do you feel that that level of bastardization is acceptable? Mm. Yeah, I think this is a this is a conversation that I ha- I've had with a lot of people actually. Like, because fusion has such a bad rep, um, but slowly, although slowly that is changing, right? But when people think of fusion, I think our minds immediately go to those like bastardized versions of of food, and and we get really riled up over like, oh, how dare you? I don't know, like put ketchup in chakritya or like. <laughs> or like durian and like soup or something like that, like like some random, uh, random bastardized dish. But to me, as long as people approach the dish or approach the the source of their inspiration with 
some level of respect or curiosity and yeah, respect and curiosity as well um, for, you know, how that dish was originally made and why you're, why you're making changes to it and why you're making it, um, why, why you think like, you know, adding, um, uh, yeah, adding, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of an example, adding like sambal into uh, kimchi stew, how, like why would that make it better, right? Um, and at the end of the day, I think experimentation is very natural. Like having food evolve over the years is very, very, a uh, very natural occurrence. Mm-hmm. And within all those experimental food, there will be some that don't taste good. There, there will be some bastardized versions. But at the same time, there will be really great inventive yeah. dishes that drive the food industry forward as well. Um, just like I, I guess an example that immediately comes to mind was like is like uh, the uh, Dominic Ansel's uh, what, what was that his uh, cruffin or, or before oh, that it was was it a cronut or was it- yeah it was a cronut and then yeah yeah there was cruffin some, somewhere else sorry uh, yeah it was a cronut so I, I mean like those are two things that you know you wouldn't think of putting together but that was it, it's almost like people when you first hear it you think it's like a bastardized version of something of, of like a croissant and a donut but when you actually taste it, it's like, oh, it's really good. And there are lessons and uh, lessons you can learn there in terms of like technique or inspiration. Yeah, so it mm. is a necessary step in moving uh, the food industry forward, I, I, I would say. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I love what you said. Um, let's speak specifically about your podcast. I'm very interested to know, like, what was your thought process when you first decided to start Take A Bow? Mm. <laughs> to be honest, I, I think the stories that I explored and take about are, it, it, first and foremost, it, it just came from a place of like genuine like interest or curiosity for me. Like, like these are the stories that I want to find out more about. I want to learn more about oh, the durian trade in Malaysia and how like Musang King came to be. I want to learn more about um, the Chetty people in Malacca. When I first heard about that, uh, about them, I didn't know anything about that community. So the podcast kind of served as a means of, oh, me going deep into that topic and exploring. Um, so yeah, though, all, yeah, all the topics in there are things that initially I was like really interested about and curious about and just wanted to learn more. And I just kind of brought people along on that journey, I suppose, on, in, in the form of a podcast. Yeah, and I'm very curious, did you create it um, with the foreigner in mind or was it more for people who live within Southeast Asia? Mm, I think both, I would say, because, um, well, actually, first and foremost, it was created with like m- with me in mind, I suppose, like, oh, these are the things that I want to learn more about. But, <laughs> but over, yeah, since I've released like the 10 episodes, like I've, I've received um, feedback or comments or encouragement encouragement from like both sides both like um malaysian uh locals or singaporeans or southeast asians that are living abroad and listening to that kind of brought them back home or or made them miss home but at the same time i've also received like comments from uh non-malaysians non-singaporeans as they learn about these stories they they feel like oh i'm learning so much about their culture and it it just it's just really interesting to them and and yeah i think it's well i i hope it's like a joy to listen to and for me i take a lot of inspiration from podcasts like um gastropod or like proof um they are i guess like u.s or western centric 
podcast, food podcast. Um, but the way they delve into food history, food stories, just it just it's just really inspiring. Even though I don't have uh, that cultural background to let's say like <clears throat> to um, cranberry juice or um, you know growing up around uh, Philadelphia cheesesteak and stuff like that. Like learning about those and hearing about those through the through the uh, medium of podcast, like it just makes me interested in food as a whole. So, so I guess that is the spirit that I'm trying to to capture, just getting people more interested about food, yeah. no matter the background. Yeah, mm. I think that was something that I you know, we're struggling with in the sense that, you know, do I angle the content to be more local or more foreign? Um, not not say foreign. I mean, should it be like hyper-local in that, you know, there are things that um, only locals kind of know about or should I angle it towards things that are more universal, you know, have more universal charm? Um, mm. Because I feel that, you know, when you look at um, the media outlets that are reporting on Singaporean or Malaysian food, you always have, you know, the typical few, like the best hits, right? Like you have like, <laughs> chicken rice and you have nasi lemak. And then like when, you know, not many people are doing things that are more like, you know, more specific Maybe it's like um, Bulu Inti, you know, that maybe only a Singaporean or a Malaysian would know about. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, as I started doing Singapore noodles, I realized that that was the case in the sense that the, you know, the ones that the stories or the recipes that would resonate most with people are the ones that are like the greatest hits. And, you know, the, the ones that are neglected are still neglected, you know, even when I try to kind of shine a spotlight on it. Um, I was wondering if you encountered the same challenge in your work. Mm, yeah, yeah, t- totally. I think when you described that, I was like, mm, this is something that I've, I've felt many, many times. Because mm-hmm. I think as a um, food writer or you could say like even like food content creator, it's always a struggle between wanting to, um, you know, highlight things that you are really, really interested in and, and balance that with like, oh, but how interested will other people be uh, in this same topic that I'm interested in, right? And yeah, sometimes it is a struggle because um, the for a lot of my um, recipes that I put out on my blog um, that are very weird initially, it might sound. Uh, for example, like there was a uh, lotus paste donut that I made. So it's almost like a mooncake but in the in the form of a donut, so putting like lotus paste and salted egg in it, I thought that like I think that was the best thing I've made like to to date for the blog, and I love the flavor of it, and and I'm really like proud of the inspiration behind that. But honestly, like no one's gonna search for that on online. Like, oh, how do you make a mooncake donut? Like, no one's gonna search for that, and not many people will be actually interested in like making that again. But I really enjoyed the process and, and the whole creation of that, that dish. So I think it was, I would say it was a win because uh, <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I, I gained a lot from, from making that um, and, and learning <clears throat> and, and learning how to, how to, you know, recipe test and, and develop a, a recipe like that. Um, so I would say like, first and foremost, it's to do with, your own interest in a certain subject. And it's almost like, you know, you just have to do things that you are interested in, you are passionate about. And slowly, hopefully, people will um, 
turn to those things um, because I, I guess a more recent example would be something like um, I made like a instant noodles with like uh, curry sauce. So, so almost like a, cause yeah, people are doing like instant noodle hacks and whatnot, but I was like, mm, those hacks are quite, you know, we, um, yeah, some, sometimes it's a bit like bastardization or, or it's a bit, uh, how, how do you put it? Like, <clears throat> Yeah, so some of these hacks, they don't actually work, right? Uh, when, when you get around to doing it. Um, but I wanted something that, you know, packs a punch, packs a lot of like umami and, and uh, even like spiciness. So then I kind of just put like some Japanese like curry cubes into and, and just like folded it into ramen, which was like a really quick thing to make. And, and that kind of resonated with, with, with people, which was something that I didn't quite expect because again, it's like, some funky flavors that, that no one has really done before. Um, but yeah, so it just takes trial and error, I suppose. And, and over the years, you know, you will get a sense of, oh, what these are some things that I'm interested in. Um, but at the same time, you also find things that, that others are more likely to engage with and, and you get, um, yeah, you, you, I guess you just find some sort of balance. So something else I was wondering about was, you know, you, you touch on certain topics um, on, on the podcast that can be very, I mean, it's very traditional and it's hard to find um, people who um, speak fluent English in that industry. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for example, the Kopi Diam um, <clears throat> podcast episode. Um, I feel that, um, you know, on one hand, as content producers, we try to shine a spotlight on lesser known um, facets of our, our cuisine and our culture. But at the same time, you know, the older generation in Singapore and in Malaysia, um, you know, there is a sense of uh, maybe apprehension um, because they are not very used to being around media all the time, you know. And also there's a language barrier, you know, be it dialects or mother tongues, you know. So how do you get around that? Mm, I think sometimes that it's, it just takes more work and, and more effort on, on our parts, right, to, to learn about their story in, in a very, like, authentic and, and deep way and, and try to understand where they, they are coming from and capture the essence of what they're trying to say. So in, in, in terms of, you know, them speak, speaking uh, a different language that is, that is not English, like, for an English podcast, it's important to, you know, have, um, I guess, like, translation work for... For those um, for those people who who can't speak uh, English as fluently as as we do, um, and I think it's through that translation, it it certainly like takes more work and more effort on our parts. But it's also through that translation that you know we can share the our stories to to the rest of the world. So I think um, for people who don't yeah who who aren't fluent in English, like translation is key. But at the same time, it's also you know, people who are not used to being under the media spotlight, it's, it's a skill. It's, a re- it's really a skill to um, try to make them feel at home, more um, open to sharing about their experiences. And it's something that is tricky from in, in the beginning, uh, at least in my experience, it was very tricky for me to, you know, approach like an Kopitiam uh, uncle and, and just like speak to him very candidly about um, his past because it's, 
if it's like our first or second time meeting, he's not just going to open up and tell you stories about like 50 years ago, right? It's, it's almost like, oh, you have to gain their favor, right? You have to be in their good books first before, before they will share everything with you. Um, but when they do share, it's a very rewarding experience. For example, for the uh, Kopi Tiam episode uh, with the um, Uncle, Uncle Jack and Mervin, his son from uh, Yutki Kopi Tiam. Um, yeah, so I went to the Kopi Tiam like, like, three, four times before even like doing an interview with them. So it was, you know, slowly like building up um, and, and learning about them and having the food uh, and just chatting with them without a, a mic in their face uh, for like a, a few times before I actually said, oh, like, would you like to share this on um, on a podcast I'm doing on, on the project? Uh, and yeah, so it, it after the initial connection um, that we had, yeah, uh, Uncle Jack was like very willing to share. So yeah, I'm really grateful for that. And I think just in general, it takes, it, it's again, something that you have to put effort into, right? To, to build that relationship and that connection and get the most authentic um, uh, kind of story from, from them. Mm. Yeah, I think that is a big thing, um, you know, for people who really want to highlight our culture and our cuisine because a lot of the information and knowledge and wisdom and stories and lived experiences lies in these, you know, older people who reside in our part of the world, right? Mm. And um, I feel that like a, a huge spotlight has been shown on chefs particularly, you know, in 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 the media, um, mm. but you don't see people interviewing um, aunties or uncles that much, you know? Mm. You feel the same? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, part of that is like, you know, the language barrier that we mentioned or like the, the uh, I guess, hesitancy to, to share so openly on, on like a first meeting. Um, and I think, yeah, it's in part due to that. Um, but at the same time, there is also like a, yeah, the media is naturally more focused on like, you know, fast, quick trends um, and, and also like looking at um, the, the rising chefs that, that are getting like worldwide uh, recognition for, for their work. Um, you guys have a lot more of that in, in Singapore than we do in Malaysia. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think a lot of interesting stories do suddenly come from all these uncles and, and aunties maybe running their stalls for like like many, many decades. And and yeah, it's it's yeah, it's something that I'm very um aware of as well. And and yeah, I was wondering from your uh podcast like Singapore Noodles, do you have you approach um a lot of all these uh, hawker store uh, aunties and uncles or, or even like you know run ones that run home businesses that that deal with food like have you interviewed any of them before yeah I mean for for the podcast because you know as you mentioned it's a it's a format that is purely you know people listen to it you can't provide subtitles mm. and things like that so it's really difficult unless um, it's a format like what you do with take about where you kind of provide um, translation at the same time and you kind of like uh, have a broader story that you weave them into but I think when it's like a long conversation between me and someone I think it's very difficult for, for me to achieve that with this kind of podcast but I mean mm. I definitely had my experience of talking to to them uh, when I was working on wet market to table which is the cookbook mm. 
on Singapore's wet markets. I had to go down to, you know, wet market stalls and talk to the uncles and aunties and even have their photographs taken. Mm. But I felt that there was a lot of resistance. Maybe it was like suspicion because, you know, I looked like a reporter with like my, my camera <laughs> and like my pen and my notebook. Um, and they were like, you know, like, the moment they saw the camera, immediately they didn't want to entertain me, you know? Mm. I felt, at that point, I felt very discouraged because it's almost like I was trying to do my best to save the wet markets or like to, you know, allow their voices to be heard. But, you know, maybe for them, they didn't feel the same need, you know? Like maybe, and, and I just felt like an outsider going in because, you know, I came in from the position of someone from academia mm. going into these places and maybe they felt this us, us and them kind of thing. And it was very difficult, as, as you said, to have a connection on the first visit. It's really difficult to go down to a stall for the first time and meeting someone who is willing to, to um, be photographed or to be interviewed. And oftentimes I had to go in with a friend who knew the, the vendor. And even then, right, when they, when they brought me down to meet the vendor, um, they would realize that they would act really differently. Um, mm. uh, so, so my friend brought me down to Chinatown Market, which is one of the biggest markets in Singapore. And um, the vendors, when, when they saw my friend and, and me coming in with the camera and whatnot, they were like, no, I'm not going to talk today. And my friend was really like taken aback. He was like, you know, they, they normally don't act like this. Right. Um, and so I think it's quite difficult. And even when I conduct written interviews where I, I get my friend who is maybe uncle owns a chicken rice stall in Singapore. So I'll send them questions and then I'll ask, you know, my friend to, inter to be the one who interviews his uncle. And um, the answers would always be really short. Um, and not very meaty as as composed uh, as opposed to if you were to interview someone of our age group, you know, I think they they would kind of know that you are trying to flesh out a story. Yeah. Mm. So, so in that sense, my, my friend was like, you know, you should really come back to Singapore and have a beer with my uncle. And then like, that is when all the stories <laughs> will come out. You know? But I mean, right. you know, it's not always feasible to do that. And I, I think that has been one of the biggest struggles for me in really documenting all of these voices and um, presenting a holistic view of Singaporean food culture. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've had a lot of experience like, trying to deal with that as well and it, and it is kind of like a recurring I, I wouldn't say like issue but but a recurring i guess like challenge right yeah. that that you will always have like when when you try to um yeah find out about all these deeper stories that that lie in the hands of of a lot of the older generation yeah mm, yeah i think you know probably because um, you know, sometimes I, f I do feel that the difference in attitudes between the younger and the older generations when being, when expressing themselves um, comes with us being more westernized in general. I feel that the older generation that tends to be more, you know, um, entrenched in Asian uh, traditions and Asian mannerisms tend to be more mm. stoic in a way. Mm, maybe yeah may, maybe there's a bit of like westernization in there but at the same time i've also met like aunties and uncles who are um quite like open to sharing although yes admittedly like less than 
um, I guess people in our age group. But but yeah. again, maybe that's kind of like a biased sample. But yeah, I've had, met like aunties and uncles who are like very boisterous and and like willing to share anything and just yeah. wanted to tell you stories. Um, and yeah, I think as long as you know, it it does take effort, but it's always important to come from a place of like uh, respect and like interest in 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 the food, right? And I think. Uh, the older, uh, older generation especially they can tell when you're being like genuine or yeah. if you're like here just for you know you just want your story and, and you just want to get out um, yeah. and, and if you're truly interested in, in what they're doing what they have to say um, and you display that, that interest to them I think they are yeah more than over time especially they're more than willing to share mm. Mm, yeah I, I think I did an, an interview with Brian Cole who is this champion of um, you know cuisines like Filipino food or like Burmese cuisine and that was something that he did mention when he you know in his experiences of going down to these places and interacting with the locals he said you know they can really sense um, whether you are just there to get your story and then you are out or if you are mm. genuinely interested in spending time with them um, connecting over a period of time, you know? Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that's something that is very um, unique to, to, you know, Asian culture in that um, the love language is really, you know, physical time, you know, not even quality <laughs> time, but like sometimes physical time, you really spend time with uh-huh. them. Um, yeah. To prove your metal and your worth, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And physical time is especially hard over this like pandemic period, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. You know, especially since you know I conduct my interviews through Zoom or through mm-hmm. emails and things like that. Yeah. Mm. So I was thinking, what is next for you? I mean, what is the mission that you're working towards, or the vision, or the goal? Oh my gosh, big, big question. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think right now a lot of things, a lot of the things that I'm doing, um, the content that I'm creating is really, again, coming back to that, I guess, central point of trying to bring, uh, trying to like increase people's awareness or curiosity for food. And I don't know like what the next five years, 10 years hold for me. Um, but I would say, you know, as long as I'm, I'm exploring my own interest and also increasing other people's interest in food. I think that will be like a, a, a win for me. And as, as long as I'm doing that, I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Loi Jun, a food writer, content creator, and founder of the Take A Bow podcast. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.